Welcome to Mihinte on Air on 100.5 and 790 News Radio WSGW and online WSGW.com. Now, here is your host, Larry Rodarte. Good evening. Buenos noches. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back to Mihinte on Air in 2022. The holidays are over, and we're here back at the Alpha Media Studios. I hope that everyone is safe and doing what they need to do to stay healthy. My producer is attempting to have us go live stream, so I guess I have to be on my best behavior here. And we're going to stumble along the way, and that's a given, but we will try our best to bring you a great show each week. So what are your thoughts on Mi Gente On Air? Now in our second year of the show. You know, it's a it's a show to promote Latino contributions, cultures, and concerns. That, that's been our main theme all along. And we're here. We have a unique culture as a people, part of the greater community of Americans. I hope you will spread the word about Mi Gente On Air here on WSGW 100.5 FM and 790 AM. Let's talk, let's listen, and let's have a dialogue about issues concerning us, bringing forth people in our community doing great things. I've had a career in journalism spanning over 25 years, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And it's been pretty rewarding. And I've always admired great journalists who help us to understand a story better. And one of the great journalists that I have followed through the years is Luis Aguilar out of Detroit. He's an award-winning journalist and an author, and he is an arts fellow. He has worked as a project reporter for the Detroit News for over 15 years and was a senior reporter also for Bridge Detroit and he has chronicled the rise the fall of his native Detroit. I want to welcome Luis Aguilar to Mi Gente on Air as a fellow journalist and an admirer of his work. Welcome Luis. Oh thank you. Happy New Year. That's very kind of words. Thank you so much. Hey buddy, you've you've earned it. <laughs> Anybody who's been in the, is, is a journalist for as long as you have been uh, as well as myself. I mean, you know, it 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 takes a special kind of person and I have always I've always seen that with you, you know, and in the the work oh, that you've you. done. And so I you know, I congratulate you on the longevity of your career as well as just uh, the, the neat projects that you have been involved with. And, and that's part of the whole reason why I invited uh, Luis to the show, because he has a real affinity for Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. And we're going to talk about that more in the show, but I want to give Luis the, uh, the chance to uh, tell my listeners exactly who he is and what, what his background story is. Uh, well, I'm uh, a native of southwest Detroit. Uh, actually, my family... My mother's family moved uh, to the Corktown neighborhood oh, about 95 years ago, actually. Um, like many people of their generation, many Latinos and other uh, uh, immigrants and others, they moved to Detroit uh, because of factories and manufacturing work, as did my uh, father uh, during the Korean War, actually. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I... Grew up in Detroit. I went to Wayne State. I left Detroit for about 15 years to uh, go to other cities. And then around 2004, I returned uh, back to Detroit. Uh, like most people from Detroit, they come back, usually because of family reasons. And mine was also because of family. My mother was, uh, uh, my mother actually had passed away, but there were others in my family that probably needed my help, so I came back. 
but it was also a good opportunity to come back to Detroit. I mean, I did. I wanted to leave so bad, and then I kind of wanted to actually come back really bad. So. Isn't that something we we all kind of yeah. uh, you know? I kind of similarly did that role, and you know, ended up back in Saginaw after living in Detroit for about fifteen years. So it's kind of like the sure, same thing. Yeah. I just didn't go to the the bigger cities, but I I did go to uh, state in the state of Michigan, you know. And you you mentioned Southwest Detroit, so you're you're like right from the 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 Mexican town area, correct? Oh uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, it's funny uh, you call it Mexican town. I mean, nobody when I grew up actually called it Mexican town. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know, so, it, it's kind yeah. of funny because. Now that's what it's referred to, and yeah, we sure. hear we hear about you know the Mexican areas in Chicago or even in L A or whatever, and none of those are referred to as Mexican town the way Mexican town in Detroit is. <laughs> I, I think yeah. that that's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, I I I I was really surprised to learn that. And yeah, yeah, I uh, it, it's funny. When I grew up, I grew up basically during the seventies. And uh, Southwest Detroit wasn't as Mexican as it is now, actually, during the sort of resurgence, I think that began in the 90s with the new wave of immigrants, particularly from Jalisco. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but when I grew up, it was really sort of uh, Latino Mexican tinged. But it was, uh, I was very grateful for all the diversity in the neighborhoods of uh Still, lots of uh, sort of white ethnics of Greeks, uh, Irish, uh, Appalachian, Southern, Polish, uh, lots of Eastern Europeans, but also Filipino and, uh, you know, Vietnamese, Thai, uh, certainly lots of Middle Eastern and, of course, African-American. I was really grateful for growing up in that environment. And actually, I really think it helped me as a journalist, because I mean, really that's the way most cities are. And when I went to places like Washington DC or Denver or uh, Los Angeles, I mean, it really did feel like even, yeah. And it felt like uh, Southwest Detroit. I mean, it was just sort of Mexican tinge, but everything else thrown in it. <laughs> a, a real eclectic group. I, I felt very comfortable. Yeah, I felt very comfortable with so many other different groups. Wow. Which I realized that, uh, not everyone does. Well, maybe not everyone. I mean, sometimes it takes others who don't grow up with that. It takes them a while to adjust to that. And I think that really helped me as a journalist that I didn't sort of freak out about having to learn about other cultures or things. One, I often had familiarity with it. And two, even if I didn't, I didn't really have weird assumptions about it. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, I I worked at the Saginaw News uh, for a little bit as a uh, intern back in the mid '90s, and it really was, um, you know, the newsroom was really a newsroom, like you know, you see yeah. it in all the President's Men movie, and and, it just, <laughs> yeah. it, it, and I, I was yeah. really invigorated by you know my cohorts around me vigorously typing on those you know ancient <laughs> typewriters to get a story yeah. out and i i wanted to ask your you the question how was it for you at the detroit news was it did you have a similar newsroom or what you know because now everybody's at home doing their thing yeah uh yeah it was uh it was a big city newsroom i mean speaking of all the presidents but i actually did work at the washington post for a while oh you did so i mean yeah i worked there in uh let's see when the hell did i work there uh uh Prior to your mid-90s, mid-90s. Okay, mid-90s. Prior, prior to your stint with the Detroit News then, right? Yeah, I yeah I left for 15 years. I lived, 
Colorado, then uh, D.C., and then back to Colorado. So, um, but yeah, I worked at the Washington Post, uh, and that really was an international place. I mean, really, you, uh, I mean, you can go there any time of the day because it has an international desk and all that kind of stuff. You could see people, you know, on the phone, like at Sunday, like at two o'clock in the morning, because they're dealing with Tokyo and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it really did have this kind of twenty-four-seven kind of thing happening. And there was just a sea of people in uh, cubicles, and uh, the, I mean, you know, the small. I mean, Detroit News is a much more of a a city paper, but yeah, it does have that uh, large newsroom. But you know. You know the state of newspapers, man. I mean, there yeah. were more and more empty cubicles. I mean, at one point there was an empty floor, and then we moved in. We actually moved when I was there to a to a, a smaller building where we just took up two floors. And by the time I left that, there were still lots of empty cubicles and things like that. So it was it was tough to see that, and it was there was almost an annual loss of people through buyouts and things like that. It was really hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know it, it was, it was to me, you know, in just in, in a short time period, just because of the evolution of, of, you know, technology and everything else from the nineties, the mid nineties, all the way until to, till what the, the late two thousands, uh, it, it just changed drastically. And the newsrooms that we knew back in those days are no longer around. So it really, yeah. it really was devastating to see. Yeah. But can you can you tell me a little bit about um, your work there with the Bridge of Detroit because of that whole initiative with the Kresge uh, Foundation and others? Oh yeah, so it was, uh, you know, there is a wave of uh, hyper local they call it as as newspapers do sort of get shrink and people are really concerned about the lack of local coverage about things that matter from city council and uh, local government and tax breaks. So it was one of those efforts, the nonprofit newsroom, and the newsroom was very small. Uh, it is still very small. It was founded by a publication that actually, a nonprofit that started about 10, 15 years ago for something called Bridge Michigan, which is a much more like, they take a look at Michigan overall, mm-hmm. and they wanted to start something specifically about Detroit. Yeah. So there was a guy named Stephen Henderson. He was a uh, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his editorials at the Free Press, and now he's on uh, the local public radio station here in Detroit, as well as uh, local public television for, uh, I think, uh, American Black Journal. Uh, he worked on helping raise money to get this initiative off the ground, and it was it's a, it's three reporters and an editor sort of figured out what Detroit uh, really want. Detroiters really want. And their coverage. I mean, uh, very local about city, more city council stuff, uh, more profiles of people. Uh, so it's one of those movements that's very hyper local to bring back sort of the nuts and bolts of Detroit, uh, of of city hall and things like that. Things that uh, there's not as much coverage in the local papers anymore because of budget cuts. Yeah, yeah. And it's just one of the many movements of going on. I mean, I can name like for such nonprofit news sites here in Detroit, specifically about Detroit. And I hope Saginaw has a few of them going as well. Uh, and so, you know, it's all part of the grand experiment, you know, to sort of uh, 
keep uh, the public informed about important things, everything from sort of zoning to neighborhood issues. Yeah. So I was very happy to be part of that moment, uh, especially during the moments we had. I mean, literally, I mean, wow. I mean, yeah, my last week at the Detroit News in uh, 2020 was the week that, um, uh, well, it was the week before the state lockdown. But at that point, Dan Gilbert and Quicken Loans had announced that he wasn't going to, he didn't, he wanted all his workers to stay out of downtown to not go. And that sort of caused like, okay, everybody should stay home. So the last week at the Detroit news, which is downtown Detroit, I just remember it was so empty and it was like the nineties again, man. It was like, (laughs) Oh my God, there's nobody around. And it was eerie. And uh, yeah. So I started during the pandemic and then there was uh the Black Lives Matter uh, events, and then the elections that never ended. It was, yeah. it was a hell of a time to be uh, a reporter in Detroit or anywhere, and uh, it was stressful. I'm so glad I got to do it, but I mean, uh, it really took its toll. Yeah, uh, and yeah. it's one of the reasons I, uh, you know, I mean, we don't even have the Bridge Detroit never even got around to having a, an office because. I mean, we it would have been kind of didn't make sense because I mean we're all working out of our house anyway because of safety. Yeah, because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was a very strange time. It was, I mean, a startup always is pretty intense, and then to have those things happen one after the other or simultaneously was even more. It was really a, a remarkable period. Yeah, uh, and and that and that's part of you know why I felt it was important for you to come on the show as well today because. Uh, they hear from me in regard to um, what we went through in 2020 and you know I had to get away and take a vacation I mentioned that to you just yeah Yeah. you know my mind I couldn't focus and I think that you know it was really a historical time for journalists because there was so much going on from George Floyd passing away like you you mentioned and the Black Lives Matter and then the election that never ended I haven't heard it that described that way before but uh, I do now I'm going to probably use your words there but it, it was was just so much in the the polar polarization of our our country you know that 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 was another whole story yeah yeah Yeah. so it's i i hear you man i yeah i was uh it was i'll be honest i mean it was the election that broke me because i was literally at uh the um what's it's now called the Huntington Center it, it, for a while for a minute it was called the TCF Center that it was but usually it's Cobo oh but yeah it's where it's where they were counting the absentee ballots so I was literally there the day that it was stormed by a group of Trump supporters I and I will that. never for, I will never forget the image so I'm in a room full of uh, basically black women doing their duty of counting uh, absentee ballots and this and you know there was a glass wall and uh it was locked and and just this wave of angry white people with trump signs literally pounding on the door literally trying to storm and stop the vote and then i mean that was such a traumatic event and then you know it la- i thought you know then there were the lawsuits and then I thought it was over, and then January sixth happened. I mean, which you know, funny. Year ago today, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, yeah. But you know, as a journalist, I mean, there is a huge amount of energy and run up 
to the election itself. I mean, just the coverage and you stay up all, you know, late that night. And then usually you get to take a break, but we never had a break. Yeah. And so literally the amount of hours and emotion uh, that was put into this, I was like, oh, my goodness, I could not. I really felt like uh, I never really fully recovered, to be honest. I mean, I thought we should continue like, hey, man, we should can follow this story. I mean, the lawsuits, everything. And but there was so much more to cover. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it was. Uh, well, that that's it, one it, of the things why, you know, that's why one of the reasons I took a, of a, of a, a sabbatical, yeah, if you will. And I, think, I would yeah. highly recommend it because. You know, you got to oh, yeah. stay healthy. You got to stay healthy in your yep. journalistic mind, and you know, have a clear head. And it, it, it really, I think, because we as a, as Americans had never experienced what we did in 2020 at that level. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, to you know, if you if you woke up in a, any given morning during 2020, there was all kinds of news that yeah. you know. Yeah. And and for me, it was like way too much. I couldn't focus. You know, and yeah. uh, that's. I'm glad you got away. Yeah, it's a very positive thing yeah yeah well listen i, I want to talk to you a little bit more um about the um the your connection to frida and diego but first before we get into that and i want to talk about the accidental mummies of guanajuato i remember oh. <laughs> i remember that beautiful exhibit there at the detroit wow. science center i was it's there i thought research. it was one of the best i've ever seen my great grandfather <laughs> is from guanajuato oh, and beautiful. so you know, there was, there was, yeah, there was a mummy at the exhibit with a cowboy hat. Do you remember in the cowboy oh, booth? Yeah. I, yeah. I took that, man, this is exactly probably what my grandfather looked like in that time period, you know? <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about your experience with that as well as you authored a book about that exhibit, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just fortunate enough. I mean, uh, a good friend of mine uh, who, someone you probably know, her name is Martina Guzman. Oh yeah. She was, uh, so, the, you know, the local science museum had, uh, you know, arranged to have the mummies of Guanajuato to be here for, as an exhibit in Detroit. And so the museum reached out to some of the local Latino community to help, you know, put, you know, put it in context and what should we do. And so that person that they hired uh, was Martina Guzman. And uh, at that point, you know, Every exhibit, you know, has to have sort of a book, sort of, you know, sort of the official book about what the exhibit is. And so she contacted me like, hey, look, we're going to contract somebody to write. And she knew I had some experience with Guanajuato. I'd actually lived there years ago for like a very brief moment with someone with a, I had a, you know, a relationship with someone that who studied Spanish there. Oh, there's so a I, story right there. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> So, uh, so she knew that I had some familiarity with Guanajuato and that I was a writer and then like, Hey man, you should apply. So I just put in a bit. I mean, I just put in a bit about what the book should be about. And, uh, I actually remember going up to Traverse city, uh, a city I really love. And I went to a bookstore cause I had in mind, well, I mean, you know, Mexico, Guanajuato mummies, it's gotta be, this thing has got to be photocentric. It's got to be really uh, colorful and beautiful. The city itself and all that kind of stuff. So I went to this great bookstore in Traverse City, and I started looking through all these kind of coffee table-like books with huge pictures. And somebody on the staff asked me, 
like, hey, what are you looking for? I'm like, hey, you know, I got a chance to write a book like this, and I want to really, I'm looking for really good examples of like coffee table books with really colorful, great writing. And so I, I so remember this. They literally all the staff at some point just brought me their favorite coffee table books, and mm-hmm. I just had this. And so that was. I remember. I always remember how grateful, helpful they were, and and that helped me put the bid together. And I got the bid, so I wrote and. And it was great to go to Guanajuato in February <laughs> on somebody else's dime and live pretty good, yeah. I know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and write the book and do the exploration. And, uh, and there, you know, Guanajuato and, uh, you know, there is, there's, so, it's a remarkably culturally rich city. Yes. Uh, and it's close to, there's a lot of American expats there, especially near the nearby city of San Miguel de Allende. Uh, and uh, so we hired a really talented photographer from San Miguel. And uh, we I got to do this beautiful book about not just the mummies itself, but uh, the city, you know, part of the Mexican culture, how beautiful Guanajuato is, which is just gorgeous. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was I was very honored and lucky to do that. Uh, well, well, I do. I, I want to explain to my listeners in regard to what we're talking about with the mummies. Oh. We're talking about the mummies that um, yeah. they have in the mines of Guanajuato and the mountains that were preserved. These mummies yeah. were from over 100 years old, weren't they? Yeah, they're, they're called the accidental mummies because uh, Guanajuato is a very high altitude place and they were buried. Uh, I think like a lot of places in Mexico, they're buried not in the ground, but at like in uh, uh, like sort of a, a stack of tombs, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they're very airtight uh, and they're very, uh, which, uh, so at some point, I forget when, you know, it's a small town really kind of. Uh, and so at some point there was something called a grave tax and if the, if the family couldn't pay the grave tax, they actually sort of, Dug up the, uh, uh, removed the uh, body, uh, and then w- when that happened, uh, unlike you know because the the place was airtight, it was free of bugs because that's usually what why a body decomposes. That I mean, it oxygen gets in and bugs do its part, but they're in these airtight wombs, uh, tombs without any uh, bugs or anything. So when they uh, open one up. Like, oh, my God, it's a mummy. And then suddenly, <laughs> like, hey, there's a lot of people who haven't paid their grave tax. And so, <laughs> and so they opened up and all it, these tombs. Yeah. yeah well, was, you know, it was remarkable. Yeah. yeah, it was remarkable that they were able to bring those actual mummies to yeah. an exhibit like at the Detroit Science uh, Museum. And it, it was just beautiful in, in the way it was done. So I, I give kudos to anybody who was involved with that because I, I was really touched and how beautiful that, oh, that was. Yeah. yeah. And I took a whole group of people from Saginaw. I think there was a contingent of about 10 or 12 of us. Oh, and we went wonderful. down there and, you know, the way it was set up. And I think uh, President Vicente Fox was there with his wife and they spoke at the, the, oh, the opening. Right, yeah. Do you remember that? And yeah, so it really, yeah, yeah. what a beautiful cultural event it was for us, those that experienced that. And I'm going to have to uh, look for your book and uh, take a look at that. Because I love Guanajuato as a city, you know. I've been there myself. But listen, we're going to go into commercial. We're going to be right back, and we're going to talk more 
with uh, journalist, Detroit journalist Luis Aguilar and his experience as a journalist as well as his upcoming projects in writing a book about Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. So join us in a moment after commercials. Thank you. You're listening to Mi Gente On Air on WSGW. Welcome back. Mi Gente, thank you for being with us tonight here on Mi Gente On Air. And I'm talking with a great journalist. He has written many stories in the Detroit News. He has the experience coming out of Southwest Detroit as his native hometown. His name is Luis Aguilar. And he's with us tonight. Thank you for being with me tonight, Luis, again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we we are really happy that you have continued in this long career as a journalist because you and I both know there are very few Hispanic journalists out there. And yeah. we, we, we definitely need more coming from within our ranks. And so I want to throw the question to you. What would you say to any young aspiring journalist, somebody who may be thinking about writing as a career? What what would you say maybe are uh, the ups? Maybe what are the downs? Oh, I would say, depending on how young you're talking about, I guess uh, someone college age who is interested in journalism, I would say, uh, one, get internships because that's really the way you learn if you really like the job, because it's hard to reproduce in a newsroom, I mean, in a classroom, because it's it's sort of like working at a restaurant. I mean, you, I mean, you can either handle the the pressure or not. I mean, uh, and so some people thrive on it, some people don't like it. So if you're in college and thinking about it, I mean, I would uh, really encourage you to get internships to get a real sense of if you like the job, and also. It really gives you a leg up and getting hired somewhere when you get out of college. Yeah. Uh, in terms of being a journalist, I mean, there's so many different options now. Um, I would, even more than when we were uh, in college, I mean, you really have to be uh, uh, diverse in your skills in terms of you know some video editing, know how to do social media. I mean, not just write, but maybe, you know, uh, do some graphics stuff, but yeah. I mean, so you really have to be very versatile in your skills. And I don't know, really, a lot of journalists want to. I'm always curious to see how many young reporters really do want to write, and as opposed to just do video editing or make videos or something like that. But surprisingly, you do. I do find a lot of young, very young, talented journalists uh, who are really into being writers. Uh, you know, on the web, whatever. But you know, everything from being investigative reporters to, you know, sports writers, that kind of thing. So uh, I'm always encouraged when I meet very talented 
young people. They're always so versatile in what they know in terms of they do know a lot about editing and way more about social media than I ever will probably learn. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you if you run into any in the future, uh, shoot them my way with Mi Gente Magazine. <laughs> We're still publishing that publication 27 years, and I can uh, always use you. you know a, a good uh, different lens, if you will, from a different perspective. So, yeah, shoot them my way if you can. I want to ask you, Luis, you know, I have an affinity also for Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. Sure. Well does. Yeah, and uh, 10 years ago, I remember, it was in 2020, 2012, you know, I'm getting That's confused correct. with the years. Wow. The, you know, the years are just really going by now. Yeah. But uh, wow. 2012, I remember I attended with some friends. We drove from Saginaw down to Detroit into this uh, like almost an abandoned building, I remember, but we were there to uh, oh, attend wow. the, the Troublemakers, Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera in Detroit, a production that you wrote the script for. What what an opportunity. Can you tell me a little bit about that and that amazing production that you were involved with? Oh, so you probably saw it. Did, are you, you saw the production outside the the train station in Corktown? Is that the one you saw with the outdoors? No, or was it like in a downtown theater? It was like in a downtown abandoned like theater. The, I want to say it was abandoned. Floor. Yeah. Oh, it was in the upper floor of, oh, yeah, that was called the Elizabeth Theater. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. So, oh, well, thank you for going to that. Um, uh, but anyway, so I, uh, through my family, actually, something my mother said to me when I was like, I don't know, 35 or 36, I was working at the Washington Post. And every time I would come home, I would uh, uh, I would go visit the Diego Rivera mural. Uh, and then w- one time when I was home, I remember for like the holidays, you know, I sort of planted my day with my mother, like, oh, you know, I'm going to go do this, do that. And, uh, and, she, and she, I remember she said uh, at, off the cuff, like, oh, I don't know why you go see that. Thing every time you hear them, I mean, my, you know, we knew them when they were here, and they were such troublemakers. And oh. I was like, "What are you talking about?" And then she told me the story. You know, like, oh yeah, they used to come today. My mother was like, I don't know, like four or five at the time when all this happened in 1932 and 1933 when Diego was here with Frida, uh-huh. and uh, and then she told me the story. Like, oh yeah, they used to come to the neighborhood. And, People went to go see him paint, and uh, you know, you know, they, they were like crazy, like communists, and they were like uh, they were all over the map, and yeah. and I was just like, what the? I was just blown away that she actually knew these. I mean, well, not her personally, but I mean that these stories existed. And I started to ask around, and people told me great stories, and I was just flabbergasted that there was such a deep connection and I never, that I never put together. I never read about, and that really started a long quest of, Hmm, what should I do with this information? Uh, and I didn't really know what to do with it. And then thankfully I had the opportunity to write that book. You mentioned about the accidental mummies in Guanajuato. Mm-hmm. And that led to me, uh, getting something called the Kresge, uh, literary Arts Fellowship, which yes. is a great fellowship here in Detroit for artists. And I applied, uh, and really it's just a $25,000 grant with no strings attached. But I used it to, uh, when I applied, I said, I, you know, if I get this money, I really want to chase the greatest story I know about Detroit that nobody seems to know about, and that is 
the time Diego Rivera and Peter Carlos spent in Detroit and how much they spent with the Mexican-American community and just their interaction with Detroit. And so I won the grant, and I used the 25 grand to uh, take six months off to begin to research that story. Uh, And I found just an incredible story. Um, And that led to the opportunity to sort of produce a performance because when when you won a Kresge that year, they announced something called this local festival called Ardex, which is uh, if you won a Kresge fellowship, come up with an idea of a performance because we're going to have like this week-long performance in various venues, and we're going to give you more money to do it. And I was like, whoa, I don't know. Uh, you know, all I do, I would do, I was sort of researching this thing for whatever, for a story, whatever. But at that point, I knew that I had enough of like the dialogue of what uh, Frida, and Col- Frida and Diego said while they were in Detroit, all the things that got said about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, uh, as people may know, um, when the Diego Rivera mule was first uh, debuted, uh, it was at very much like a time like now, a very divided uh, society and city. It was during the height of the Depression. Uh, people were so afraid of communists and Mexicans and all that kind of stuff. And Diego was a Marxist. And so there was a huge backlash to uh, to destroy the mural, to, to whitewash it. I mean, there, there were front page editorials about you know, it was un-American. He was a foreigner, and that kind of thing. So I just saw this huge, great story, and so I got a chance to produce a uh, performance on it. And I first did it in Rivera Court. Um, I don't know, like in 2012, and that went really well. And there were, uh, you know, some musician friends of mine like, "Oh, let me write the score." I'm like, "Wow, mm-hmm. sure." <laughs> and somebody, you know. I feel like I'm like, well, you got all this great images. Let's put together like this great film in the back as we're doing this performance. And so it just became, it's the artsiest PowerPoint presentation you can imagine. Basically. Well, Um, I got, I got to witness it and I I got to take pictures and you had Detroit personalities there, other uh, uh, reporters, journalists, Charlie, Charles, uh, what was his name? Charles LaDuff. Yeah. Yes. Great yeah. performance that <laughs> night too. Yeah. And, and I, I just want to let the listeners know that, uh, if they, if they don't know, Diego Rivera was commissioned by the Detroit Institute of Arts to come and paint these murals, yeah. which they're known as frescoes. And yeah. if you haven't been to the DIA in your lifetime to see these murals, you've got to go because it's just amazing the work that he did. And there was, like Luis has said, there was a lot of backlash and they tried to whitewash them. And luckily the arts community was strong and came forward and, and fought to keep those murals uh, there. And yeah. so in the, in the, in the meantime, in the, in the backstory of all this is that Frida Kahlo comes to Detroit. She yeah. arrives at the Detroit train station and takes yeah. a famous picture with the Detroit news that is you know, yeah. very famous to this day. And she says to one of the reporters there, 
I, they said, who are you? And she says, I am the greatest artist in the world. Can you believe <laughs> she, she said yeah. that back in the 1930s? Yeah. And then she, she goes lives, on. Uh, she has a life. They stay in one of the hotels in Detroit. You know, She gets pregnant. She loses the baby at Henry Ford Hospital. I mean, there's just so yeah. much there. And you are so yeah. lucky to you know be at the cuff of trying to write this story because it truly is a great story. And it's great history for Detroit, as yeah. well as the, the state of Michigan and in America, because yeah. as we know, Frida yeah. Kahlo has become, you know, probably one of the well, greatest artists in the world. Somewhere you know? between a cult and a, yeah. <laughs> and a yeah. uh, just, uh, I don't know, a, I don't know, uh, an icon in the cult. I don't really, it's, it's really amazing. Right. I yeah, when many, many people don't know, actually, so she arrives in Detroit, she is virtually unknown. I mean, she is, she's 25 when she first arrived, uh, and she really is unknown. And it's here in Detroit, literally in a, an amazing span of seven months after she loses her child, uh, that she creates what everyone considers her first three masterpieces, something that's truly groundbreaking art. Uh, and uh, and two of them have very Detroit themes, and I I love every one of them. Uh, one is based on the death of her mother in Mexico. The other is based on her miscarriage at Henry Ford Hospital, and it's called Henry Ford Hospital. And the other one, which is actually my favorite, it's just her. It's called uh, Me Standing on the Border of the U.S. and Mexico, and it's her in a, in a gorgeous yes. dress. And one side is Mexico, and one side is sort of the Ford Rouge and New York skyscrapers. And it's, and it speaks so much to cultural alienation and identity, uh, just as, you know, the Henry Ford hospital. What's so funny. I mean, it really is based on the Mexican retablos, you know, those sort of, uh, very simple paintings on tin where people paint, uh, sort of a, a, an act of near harrowing death that they survived and they are like a car accident or something like that. And, you know, they think a saint, uh, uh, saved them and uh, saved their life. And so there's, there's always these images of sort of like whatever the calamity is. And then in the corner is sort of a, uh, La Verde de Guadalupe or some other saint who has saved them in that particular moment. And that's usually what a Mexican retablo is. And hers is based on that, but it is such a modern tape because there is no saint. It's just, the Ford Rouge, it's her pain in the bed. Um, so that fusion of Mexican tradition with and a completely modern take is just so groundbreaking, even today. And, you know, I've seen that painting. I thankfully, because of that uh, performance, and that grant, I was able to go to Frida Kahlo exhibits. One, I went to one in Vienna and I went to one in Istanbul. Wow. And uh, and those paintings are always there because uh, because of their status as their first masterpieces. And that image, I swear to God, makes people. I've seen people just break down and cry because it's so. I mean, no man can paint that. I mean, it's just it, there's no idealization of or sexualization of her body. Uh, and I mean, she's at this. I mean, she's literally lying in her bed uh, and she's bleeding. I mean, it's a pretty graphic. But there's no also like sense of uh self-pity it's a very like uh self-realization a stark self-realization of the moment she's going through it's a, it really is a truly amazing painting yeah. yeah uh so yeah i mean 
Uh, in fact, I think I'm going to write about that for a publication coming up uh, next month. Uh, but I'm also working on a book. But I forgot where this question was going. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you know, I I did get to see that painting as well, and uh, yeah, it, yeah, I was in Detroit. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's just amazing what she did in that in that short period of time. And you yeah. know, if I don't I don't know if if she if she didn't have that experience of what she was experiencing in Detroit, not only the loss of the baby, but the alienation that she felt, yeah. you know, being away from home and missing her mother, missing her family, you know, yeah. would we have those paintings that we have today? You know, and I was in London uh, in 2018 and they had at the Albert a Victoria museum. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh my God. This incredible exhibit that uh, wow. featured her clothing as well as um, so many personal items of her that were oh, found, yeah. were found, and that Diego had um, somehow said, you know, this isn't to be shown until fifty years after the passing. Oh, of, I, yeah. You yeah. remember that? And I think it's going to yeah, be in New York too. But yeah, I got to see it in in London, and I went back twice. I had to pay for a membership in order to see it because the lines were so long and tickets yeah. were sold out, and I had to pay like a membership for the the museum seventy five dollars you know, for wow. just to get in as a member. So, and I did it because I said, you know, I've got to see this. This is incredible. And, you know, here she was Mexicana from Mexico and she was all the way out in, in London, yeah. you know? So that was really, yeah, there's, I'm not exaggerating that literally somewhere in the world right now, there is a Frida Kahlo exhibit going on and it is a blockbuster show. And there are now offshoots. I mean, there's, uh, an exhibit just about her dresses. There's an exhibit about her gardening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, there's an exhibit just of her photos, and not really just of her, not even of her paintings, but just of photos of her because she was remarkably photogenic. Um, so yeah, she is. Uh, she's a phenomenon. I mean, I just uh, it, it is truly amazing. Yeah, and 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 we have her as this phenomenon, and it continually grows her persona and her, her iconic images. And it's just uh, amazing to me to see how much in just the last 20 years, how that has continually grown, not just here in the United States, but also in Europe and, you know, throughout the world. Sure, yeah, yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about your book then. Where, where are you with the book? Oh, so, I mean, really, I've been uh, chasing this idea for ever since really, even before, but when I won that Kresge grant, and I got to do that performance, I did get approached by an agent uh, and, you know, uh, which was a big deal to me. And I thought I was on my way. I'm like, wow, great, man. I mean, the play came so easily. I didn't know I could write a play. Uh, and uh, so I was like, wow, I'm on my way. <laughs> that was 10 years ago. And, uh, and, and, you know, I'm a journalist. And I thought, you know, I've won lots of awards for writing. I did write another book, although... But to write a book, like a real book, like for a major publisher uh, where, you know, that could potentially be a, a movie deal or a TV series, that is a whole different ball of wax. And I had no idea how much I had to learn to mm -hmm. be able to do that. So I remember showing my agent my proposal the thing you sort of have to show the agent and the reason you get an agent is that's really the only way you can get a publishing deal from a major publisher because they're the ones who pitch it right and they need this thing called a proposal which is like 40 pages of 
what the book is about, who you are, who's going to buy it, why there's a market, chapter outline, chapter samples. It's a pretty intense thing. And I tried to do part of that I don't know, at least uh, seven years ago uh, to give this agent. And she said, no, this isn't even close, man. I mean, this isn't – I mean, this is, this won't do – and I was pretty crushed because I didn't know how to do it any better. And so I went on a quest to try to take uh, creative writing classes uh, in my off time. And uh, I was lucky enough to get into other writing fellowships where you can go away in these beautiful places and they treat you well and you get the right of, you know, it was pretty nice. But really, I mean, during the um, during the lockdown, I mean, because I was locked down in my house, uh, I did actually start to take, uh, I took two really intense uh, online classes of how to write a nonfiction book, a uh, creative nonfiction book. Uh, and the last one I took, which I just finished last month, was at Harvard, uh, Harvard Online, and that was really, really intense. I mean, I took, so I was working like, between my intense job and this intense class at Harvard of how to write a nonfiction book, I was working like 80 hours a week. I mean, I was working, I was writing every day from like, wow. so they went on to like uh, from Labor Day till just last month, just a few weeks ago, um, where I was working really hard because it's a really great class and I learned a lot and... And the professor is the editor of the Harvard Review, which is sort of this very prestigious literary review. And she's also a very good author herself. Uh, And so for the chance to have me show her my stuff, uh, it was a really great thing. And also the other, everyone, I mean, there was like 12 people in the class, and they only, they limited to like 12 people. And everyone has to be working on a nonfiction book. They have to have, you know, not just thinking about it, they have been working on something for a while. So it really was sort of an international group of writers from literally from all up in London, Japan. Mm-hmm. There was another Harvard professor in there. There was somebody from LA, uh, somebody from Canada, that kind of thing. So all of them really talented. Uh, and, you know, I got great feedback. And then when the edit, when my professor told me that my proposal the thing again you give to agents. So do you know what? I mean, this is this is ready. I mean, this should really get you a major publishing deal. And then you know, and that's the first time I felt this confident about this pitching this book uh, since I started. I mean, I've been waiting for this moment where I felt I could be ready. I because I didn't realize how much I had to learn. So that's the stage I'm at. I mean, uh, it all came kind of a, to a head when I, uh, this month where I'm like, you know, I can't keep working 80 hours a week. It's killing me. I mean, yeah. it really is like, I mean, it's a very intense job. And this thing now, this side hustle has now really come to a forefront where I got to find out one way or the other if I can really sell this thing. So, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm i no longer with Bridge Detroit. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it's not really the way I planned it, but it did work out that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did know that I wanted to do, uh, I mean, it's unfair to ask a small nonprofit, like, hey, man, I might need a year to write my book. Yeah. I mean, I, I just realized that was not going to be possible. And I'm at the point now where I really need to find out, because I've been chasing this thing for ever since my mother told me that story. Like The troublemakers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, 
And then the past, ever since I won the Kresge 10 years ago, I mean, I've really been trying to work hard on it mm-hmm. uh, during my, you know, uh, my side, you know, when I'm not really doing the day job. And so I'm really grateful that I just have a chance finally to find out if I'm going to get a book deal. So I sent my proposal to an agent that she's that I've been working with for a couple of years now. And she's taking a look at it now, and I'm trying to see what she's going to say. But I've, there's a couple other agents who I'm also probably going to send it to. I was, you know, I put, I sort of made this announcement uh, on Facebook, which is how you kind of that's, find out. Yeah, that's how I found you. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then one of my friends is a really great author. Uh, he used to be a journalist, and he's a really successful author. And he read it. He's like, oh, my God, man, you got to send, I'm sorry, you got to send my stuff your stuff to my agent and he's a really big agent wow and i'm like okay yeah that's great and then someone else uh who knows somebody a latina i guess from houston who i guess is doing pretty well uh she uh i don't know if she knows about me or somehow but they're getting me in touch with her and i'm like okay all right well i think you're i think you're on the right path buddy and you know anything with frida Kahlo. I mean, it really turns to gold these days in, in, in our time period. But So I wish you luck, and uh, thank you so much, Luis, for being on the show here today. It's been very interesting talking with Detroit journalist Luis Aguilar, and I thank you all for listening here on Mi Gente On Air as we go into the year two of this show to talk about Latino contributions, concerns, and culture. See you next week. Hasta luego.